basically it made 2170, but only at 9,500 RPM. And they were going to 11 or 11.5 that day. And it was already at 110 PSI, I think. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by JT Oliver from JTO Power. Now, JT is breaking the internet of late with some of his outstanding fabrication work, specifically on a Mazworks and Shane T combo uh, compound triple turbocharged SR20 drag engine. Now I know that is an absolute mouthful. We'll chuck a link to some photos of this particular car because words don't do it justice but suffice to say JT has been instrumental in the build of this car from a basically bare chassis. It was absolutely nothing. He has built a complete tube frame chassis as well as all of the fabrication for what is a really intricate exhaust manifolding installation. Not a lot of room to fit three turbochargers, intercoolers, wastegates etc in the front of even a tube framed drag car. This conversation with JT goes deep into the world of fabrication. We learn what it takes to start and run a shop. We learn about 3D modelling and the importance of 3D modelling in what JT does today. Uh, We'll also learn about the advances in 3D printing of metals and how he's managed to use that to his advantage when designing and building a one-off plenum for this particular SR20 drag engine. Also learn about the different materials used in roll cage and tube frame construction and some of the pros and cons, particularly around the use of 4340 chromoly and how that needs to be treated to ensure that it is safe and reliable and it doesn't become brittle near to the welds. On top of this, JT also gives us some of his pro tips on how to get the best quality welds. And I'm talking here around fitment and cleanliness. So if you are starting your journey as a TIG welder, there's some absolute gold in this interview. Before we get into our interview, though, for those who are new to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialize in teaching people how to build performance engines, how to tune on both factory and aftermarket engine management systems, we cover performance motorsport wiring, we also cover fabrication and we cover race car driver education, race car setup and data analysis. Relevant to today's topic because we obviously are diving deep into fabrication are our fabrication courses. This includes our Motorsport Fabrication Fundamentals course which as its name implies teaches you some of the fundamentals that apply to fabrication in a motorsport environment. Now I know that a lot of enthusiasts tend to think that fabricating their own parts is a little bit beyond their skill set but the reality is that if you understand the techniques some of which are relatively basic and you understand the tools that you're going to need and how to use them to your advantage advantage you can actually do a lot with a relatively minor outlay and it's really satisfying to be able to make your own parts exactly how you envisage them. On top of this though really when it comes to motorsport fabrication this goes hand in hand with welding and the go-to option for welding in a motorsport environment is typically TIG welding. Here we've got our practical TIG welding course. Now TIG welding is one of those skills that requires a lot of practice 
but it also requires a deep understanding of the correct setup of your TIG welder. Getting this wrong will be a guaranteed result of poor welds and a lot of frustration. So our TIG welding course helps you fast track your progress here. We'll teach you how to weld just about every type of material you'll come across in motorsport including more exotic materials like aluminium and titanium and chromoly. We've got a quick start guide that will give you the correct settings for your TIG welder for these different materials and then we've got a step by step process that you can follow to ensure that you get the best possible results irrespective of the type of material you're welding. We also have a TIG purchases guide so if you are in the market for a TIG welder we'll help you narrow down exactly what you need to get the best bang for your dollar. Our course also includes a library of worked examples where you can watch our step-by-step -step process being applied in the fabrication and welding of different components. And in that library at the moment we have both an alloy and a stainless worked example. So those are probably the most common materials you're going to come across and you'll learn the different skills needed for each of those. Now I'll put a link in the show notes for both of those courses and as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code PODCAST75, that'll get you $75 off the purchase of your first HPA course. Alright, let's get into our interview with JT now. Alright JT, welcome to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. As usual, we always like to start out by getting a little bit of background on our guests and I want to start by figuring out how you got involved in cars and the automotive scene in the first place. Sure, uh, thanks for having me. I've, and I guess I've gone to cars like most people and high school. So got my first car, started messing with it with my friends. It just kind of usually goes on from there. Ended up working at a machine shop for a while, just sweeping floors and pushing buttons on CNC machines. From there, I went and worked for Injuku for a little bit, building drift cars in like 06, I think it was, 07 maybe. And um, after that, I went back to the machine shop, ran a night shift for a while by myself, which is boring doing production and then ended up building high-end staircases for a while uh, <laughs> but doing, a, but uh, a bit of a different uh, path from the automotive yeah, industry yeah uh yeah it was a little different but um really fun neat got to learn some good fabrication skills because we were building spiral staircases on penthouses and on park ave and fifth in new york and uh 180-foot so Multi-million dollar stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, huge condos. One of the yacht projects, we built a whole set of handrails out of solid nickel. <laughs> yeah, it was pure solid nickel, and then it got scrapped because they didn't like the look compared to the nickel plating, which was originally uh, suggested. So let's see. And then after, after building stairs for a while, my friend uh, Kevin Van Cleave, who was at Ijuku, who is uh, KSV Looms, he was in Grand Am and just said, you want to come and build some Mini Coopers on a team for a while. So I jumped off from stairs and went and did Grand Am, or what's now IMSA road race cars for about like five years. Okay. Let's dive back into a couple of these these elements. So just talking about getting involved in cars in the first place, and as you mentioned, sort of probably like most people listening to this podcast sort of happens when you're a bit younger. Uh just from what I've seen on your Instagram, it seems like you've been drawn more to the JDM side of things rather than the USDM vehicles. Is is that a fair take on it? And if so, what sort of drew you to to those vehicles? Was it the drifting scene? Yeah, um, I mean, I originally had see my first car was a '91 Civic hatchback, and then 
after that, got a 92 Civic hatchback and eventually did a B16 swap and had that for a while. And then drifting got really cool and I wanted a real wheel drive car. So got a S13 and did an SR swap and did a whole bunch of drifting for a while. And then, yeah, I mean, I don't know what really drew me to it. I just, I guess I like the look of them. I mean, they're cool, but it's just kind of a little bit of that underdog world, I guess. You know, not a V8, maybe. I don't know. Could do more with less, maybe. Um, it's as good a reason as any. Stupid, stupidly assuming, you know. Uh, but time now, it, it's proved out that it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, four cylinders definitely do some stuff. All right. So it sounds like you developed some mechanical skills as well along the way. I'm interested in sort of lear- learning more about the fabrication side of your background. So, so how did you get drawn into that and... Was this all self-taught? Have you got any formal qualifications in fabrication? All quite self-taught. I mean, I've always tinkered, I guess. Like I was in like woodshop class. Uh, you know, I skateboarded a bunch, so always building ramps or you know making things. So I mean, to get into fabrication, I guess it, it was a bit like out of necessity. I remember like when I did my B series swap, I eventually could see like cold air boxes, like kind of like how the ARC ones are and stuff. And I got like, what is it kind of like the foam insulation, like the thin foam insulation and like aluminum tape. And I built like a little box in my garage, like before I had like anything, you know, and uh, probably didn't last very long. But from there, I mean, probably being in the machine shop was a lot. I mean, that's where I got into machining. I didn't have any welding or like sheet metal skills at that time, but I ended up machining some parts that, you know, someone needed a bushing. I'd, I'd end up making something on the lathe between uh, run times. You know, if I got all the machines running, I'd have two minutes to jump on the lathe and, you know, turn as much as I can before I got to run over and change parts again. So yeah, I, I guess it just, it'd be out of necessity. Okay. From there, it just kept progressing ended up buying a welder after i was at injuku i got to use the tig welder once and i was like oh all right so i'm gonna go get one yeah just went and bought one that's kind of the only way you're gonna learn is practice so i just kind of jumped in and bought one i I think initially you know that sort of the usual path for an enthusiast who's wanting to do some basic fabrication work or modifications to their car you know normally the, the easy path is to start with mig welding but I think while TIG is definitely is a lot more to it, there's there's a, a steeper learning curve once you've actually mastered that. The the quality of the welding, the flexibility, particularly being able to to weld ferrous and non ferrous materials, yeah, it's a, it's a no brainer, right? Yeah, I still don't like MIG welding. I don't think I'm very good at it. I've done a fair bit of it, but if I had my choice, I'd TIG weld all day long. I mean, technically, the first welding I did was with a stick welder. <laughs> I tacked together uh, some intercooler piping for my S13 because I couldn't find anybody who would actually, actually after the point, I couldn't get anybody to weld it for a while. I tacked it up and I figured that'd be the hard part or, you know, that'd make it easy for anybody else. Like just hand it to him and be like, here, can you weld this? And it took forever until I found somebody to do it. But yeah, I mean, it was initially stick weld tacked together piping, steel piping for my S13. Okay. So as long as it gets the job done. Talking about the the machine shop experience, obviously that's played into some of what we're going to talk about with with your business as well. Were you there essentially just managing the machines? Uh, Obviously, you've just mentioned you could obviously use a lathe. So how how did that sort of uh, knowledge come about? Were you being taught by other people in that business or is it again self-taught and just picking up from, from doing it? So I worked for a paintball gun or accessory manufacturing company at their, I guess, main warehouse doing like packaging, shipping, 
Uh, we did some laser engraving there. And they had a lathe and a mill there, like a, two manual ones, just for odd little modifications for other vendor parts, maybe. So I got to play on the lathe there for a good bit. And then when I moved to Orlando, the machine shop that was manufacturing all the parts, they were here. So I kind of got just shoved in there because I already worked there. And they were like, here, you need somebody to sweep. It was kind of under under the paintball company that owned the machines in the shop. Uh, it was run by somebody else, though. So I got I got shoved in there as somebody just help and sweep and push buttons and do whatever. And once I was in there, they liked me enough to start teaching me a couple of things. So I'd have to do some second op lathe work where I got to stand there and turn a piercing point on some pins for like, you know, a thousand of them or something like that. I'd sit there and grind these mandrels or yeah, I guess it's like a mandrel that would get pulled through barrels. And so I had, I had a lot of mundane tasks that were very repetitive, but I got comfortable enough on the machines where I could then start to learn my own things, start making some of my own little parts, little bushings or a shift knob. Like I started making shift knobs all the time. You know, somebody would need something, I'd see if I could make it. So I was able to always ask questions. I was always allowed to make my mistakes, even after I asked how to do stuff and then be shown how to do things. I did have a, and still do. Um, I mean, they're right next to me now, the machine shop. And I mean, I go over there and still use any machine in there and ask questions all the time. I mean, he's just been in the business as a machinist for a long time. So in the machining world, he's taught me a lot for sure. But he's a very old school guy who does all hand coding. And, you know, he's coming around to the cam side of things because I've proofed it to him a lot. Like if he'll have something kind of complex, he'll give it to me to cam for him. But he still does all hand coding stuff. So a great resource. Okay. Let's just talk about that element there, hand coding and cam. Can you expand on, first of all, what cam is and how how that sort of integrates? I think let's come back a step. I think a, a lot of people these days who have seen maybe someone do some 3D modeling on the lights of SolidWorks and some intricate part, and there's an expectation that you just press print and it goes to a uh, CNC mill or lathe and, and your part pops out the other side. There's a few steps in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a few steps in between. All right, let's talk about those steps, because I think this is a common misconception that, that we need to sort of clarify. Yeah, we're not there yet. So there's a few steps in between. Let's see. So you design a part, you have a part, you're ready to get it made. You want somebody to put a chunk of material in a machine and press a button, and that doesn't work. So you have to go through. Um, so, okay, I guess let me go back. So hand coding, it's literally writing out all the G code, telling the machine every move to make, every process, every little subroutine for anything. And then CAM is you're going to sit at the computer and apply all of your tool paths and set up all your work coordinate systems, apply all your speeds and feeds to all your tools, which again, if you were hand coding, you have to put in what RPM it is, how fast it's going to be moving. And then I guess from there, you know, you load the program in and, and hope you got it all right. And <laughs> don't crash anything. So essentially, CAM, computer-aided machining, it's creating that G-code, the toolpaths, et cetera, feed speeds, everything, Yeah. rather than you having to manually do that. And I mean, I'm I'm assuming, again, I, this is right on the very edge of, of my level of knowledge. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely don't have expertise in this, but... I can only assume that hand coding, particularly for a, a, even a moderately complex part, that must be hugely time consuming and open yourself up to the potential for, for mistakes. Uh, yeah, like a decimal in the wrong place. 
Yeah, that could do that. Yeah, it's very time consuming. And if you want to make any changes later, you you have to comb through or or at least know where you're at and start adding all those changes. Or if for some reason you completely change the profile a bit, you know, if you were going to go around a contour, the start and finish of every arc is its own line of code. So if you change that, uh, it's a lot of changes to make. We're in CAM. You can change to an, to an extent. You can change profile or whole location, and a lot of times you'll just regenerate it, and it'll redo the code and pop it back out to what's now representative of the model. Okay, I mean this is all making perfect sense to me. That that would be uh, a time efficient and much more robust way of creating the the G code that the machine actually needs to operate off. How much user input is required in this CAM software? to actually create that G code versus how much of, a, of the process is automated? There's still a lot. You have to tell it speed, feed. You have to set up the tool. You have to make sure that the tool is correct as far as length of cut, how far the tool is sticking out of the holder, the approach, how, how you're going to go about machining apart, the order, the order of operations that you're going to go through. None of that stuff is just automatic. Um, there are some things that like, major material removal there's adaptive clearing where you can tell it like here's the whole part look at the 3d model and you can set a few parameters as far as um, stock to leave like how much to leave before you start getting close to your final numbers and it'll just apply a whole bunch of adaptive tool paths which kind of rough clear out a part like imagine you you had a piece of clay and you're making something inside of it and you just start cutting away you know huge chunks before you get into the fine detail that's somewhat automated, but you still have to tell it where you want to do it, how far down you want to go, what tool you're going to use, what speeds and feeds are right for that tool. So it's still, there's still a lot that you have to know. It's it's not, here's your part, load it in. Okay. Yeah, I think that should clarify for people uh, a bit of that process. And again, it's not quite as simple as design your part and, and press print and out it pops. Uh, in terms of that technology, is CAM still developing? I mean, is it likely that in time we'll get to a point where a lot of what we've just talked about will become completely automated within the software? To a point, it very well might. Um, Fusion now has, they might have in the past too, but they have like, drill hole recognition where it'll just look at the model see all the holes you have see if it has a chamfer and just spit out kind of a handful of things like you want to use this tool do you want to use this spot drill are you going to tap it is this the right tap and just spit out a whole bunch of code which all your operations are off to the side and you can go through and then look at them and be like oh uh actually i want this spot drill angle maybe i want this a little heavier or deeper and um that that's pretty automated to an extent but yeah i I think at some point it'll probably get there. Some of it, like we have a lot of the tool library, all the tools that we use constantly, they're sort of set up for what material speeds and feeds. And you can sort of just drop those on and kind of set it and forget it a bit because it's been proven. But yeah, you got a new tool or you're into material that you don't normally cut. It's You got a good guessing game and a good base point to start from. But there are a lot of variables that you just have to end up sitting there tweaking and figuring out. I guess as well on this point for those who are listening and, and maybe are dabbling with some 3D modeling and intending to outsource their their machining work, is the CAM side of things something that that enthusiast would need to learn and understand or is this something that you know a, a jobbing workshop that you would get that part made, they're actually doing that from your 3D model? 
Yeah, they're going to be handling the cam for sure. I'm guessing there's some liability for their tools as, as well. Oh, you know, if that G code was wrong, it could actually do some serious damage, correct? Yeah, yeah, it definitely can. You know, so most people would not. I wouldn't have if somebody was to come to me and be like, "Oh, I have this all cammed out. Can you run?" I'd be like, "No, <laughs> no." <laughs> it's like it's like somebody you know saying that you know they they have this tune for your car, or, you know, vice versa. And all of a sudden, it's like, "Do you know everything? Do you know everything that's on yeah. this car?" It's like, "Oh no, no, no! This 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 worked on my computer. It worked on my simulation. You should be fine." Makes sense. All right, we've been talking about some 3D modeling, so so let's dive a bit deeper down into that rabbit hole, particularly. And and I know that you're utilizing SolidWorks in particular for the design of a lot of the the stuff that you're actually building, fabricating. Um, how much, I guess, has 3D modeling software changed the the landscape for uh, motorsport fabrication, as far as you're concerned? It takes a lot of the guessing out for some things, for sure. You can have an idea in your head and then all of a sudden you kind of model it a bit and you realize that that there's no way that's going to work. I mean, that happened on the drag car a lot. I'd have a great idea and then all of a sudden realize like, "Mm, nope, that's never fitting there. So it's a big game changer, I think. If you're efficient in modeling, it can really save you a lot of time. I've been able to model and print, uh, at least print a part to test or print jigs for things or print uh i've printed a set of dies i've printed a, i printed a couple of weird very useful parts and it's just stuff that you you can get there I, I mean honestly you can probably get there sometimes about the same amount of time as if you started modeling it and printed it or something like that but your success rate is much higher I, I guess if you want to go to the trouble of of modeling an entire tube chassis setup in in the lights of SolidWorks before you start, you've you've got that ability to test, you know, maybe the articulation of all the suspension joints, etc., you know, the the steering geometry, and, and make sure that you're not going to have anything collide with any other parts, which can be a little bit more hit and miss, maybe with just freestyle fabrication. Sure. Yeah, it definitely offers that as an option. You could still mess that up too if you model your stuff wrong. But <laughs> I mean, it's always a case of garbage in, garbage oh, out. Absolutely. So yeah, point point taken. Uh, in terms of the the skill set, because obviously the the skill set for operating software like SolidWorks. Fusion 360, etc., is quite different to the skill set required to lay down a, a high quality bead of weld. So, you know, how, how did you get involved in that, and what were the challenges in, involved in learning the software? Let's see, probably around the time when I was at Injuku, I was I started modeling a bit, and then at the machine shop, I'd model parts because they did everything with just 2D AutoCAD. So I'd model some things and be able to pull like a little shop print and print it out, go to the lathe and make stuff. But basically, I was pretty self-taught. I did for a few, I mean, probably six months to a year would just pick up something and grab a pair of calipers and just draw it. Like I, I, I grabbed one of my coilovers that wasn't on a car yet and sat in my room late into many nights just taking it completely apart and drawing every single part of it. You know, how are you going to draw a spring? I don't know. Let me let me figure it out and start figuring out some helixes and having sweeps over 3D sketches. And if you can't figure it out, just diving into YouTube to see if somebody has a tutorial. Or SolidWorks had a lot of really good tutorial. I mean, I'm sure they still do. You just go to that little side menu and start going through tutorials and learning how to extrude a part, how to make a hole, how to add a chamfer. It, it's one of those things that, the best way to learn it is just, you know, practice and, and diving into it for your own your own thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these days we're sort of spoiled with, with options for, you know, tutorials, as you mentioned on YouTube. Uh, we, I'm not sure when this is going to come out versus when our course is out, but, uh, we are just currently in the recording stage of a 3D, uh, modeling course, which is very specifically focused around the motorsport industry. So I, I know that that's going to be uh, hugely helpful, but yeah, like, like anything, I mean, practice makes perfect as well. It's going to take uh, hours sitting in front of the the computer actually using the software to become familiar with it so to the point where it becomes second nature and uh, you know th- there's always a, a bit of a, a frustration level when you're first starting anything new getting yourself up to speed with it so you know you've got to sort of push through that initial phase and you know start uh, start seeing some progress and, and then you know, it, it sort of becomes self-fulfilling I think to a degree. In terms of the software options around You've mentioned SolidWorks, or we've talked about SolidWorks. Uh, there's also Inventor and there's Fusion 360. I think probably Fusion 360 because for personal hobbyist use, it's essentially free, has become the, the kind of go-to. Uh, SolidWorks and Inventor are both more sort of professional level paid uh, software. What's, uh, what's your sort of take on pros and cons of the three? SolidWorks. I, I started with it, so I know it, and I, I really like it. It's very intuitive. It's just super familiar to me. Like I said, when I was learning it at one point, I did go take like a week-long little course thing. That I, The best thing I learned from it was fully constraining my sketches because I'd be in it, and I'd have this model all done kind of, and I'd go in, and all of a sudden, I'd grab an entity and drag it, and all of a sudden, the whole thing is all screwed up. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it was like a basics class, and I was in there. I'm like, man, I know I know a lot of this already. And then they talked about that, and I was like, oh. And that was like a big clicking point. But I mean, after SolidWorks, I've, I have... I have played an inventor when I was building stairs because he had well, AutoCAD and Autodesk. So I played with it there. It was very similar to SolidWorks, but just being used to SolidWorks, I automatically kind of didn't like it. Um, it was very similar, <laughs> but I didn't know where, you know, all, all, all my buttons were and, you know, all that. And then lately, probably the past year and a half, I've been pretty deep into Fusion 360, mainly for the cam factor of it. Basically, if I have something that is going to end up getting machined, I'll just design it in Fusion. I kind of like force my hand to to learn it. But there's still a lot of times where I just, I hate it because it's not SolidWorks. It's just, I, there's just one thing I I always my buddy Garrett who he he ends up doing a lot of programming I'll just call him up and complain about it he's like what what's wrong no this is really great I'm like no it's not it's this is terrible so um and it's just it's just a personal preference I, I can do this in SolidWorks and I probably don't know how to do it in Fusion and it's real frustrating but Fusion's really great because the community around it is huge i mean it's mainly what you're saying the fact that every everybody can get into it at such a low entry cost or no cost and it's turned into this huge community where there's so much online references to stuff that if you have a question if if you didn't try to find the answer you probably can if you just looked a little bit so yeah, and it's it's definitely been a game changer for that that hobbyist enthusiast market. I mean, what what you're saying there is understandable. I, I kind of get the same with 
uh, different aftermarket engine management systems. You know, I'll, I'll have the ones that, that I use frequently day in, day out. And obviously, I'm totally familiar with how that software works, the, the hotkeys, the shortcuts, etc. And I, I can produce a tune quickly and efficiently. And I'll get on another system. And obviously, essentially, they're doing the same thing. They're providing fuel and they're providing spark. But the, the user interface is different. The hotkeys are different. And there's that learning curve and you sort of end up just with a level of frustration. I know that you know they take it to another tuner who who has the opposite experience and is very familiar with the other ECU and they're going to have exactly the the opposite sort of experience as well. I mean, while there obviously are differences, both subtle and maybe not so subtle, is, is it fair to also say that the fundamentals of uh, 3D solid modeling are the same and if you understand those, you could adapt to any of those three software packages. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things ingrained from that SolidWorks course that I took was um, simple sketches, multiple features. And I mean, that I think that carries into all of them. You know, if if your part's starting off as a square and it has a bunch of holes in it, just draw the square, you know, and then and then make your holes, you know, one step at a time, you just nibble your way through the part and, and you'll have a whole part. So yeah, the basics definitely carry over through all of them, I would think. I mean, in anything. I mean, it's probably probably the same with anything, just little nibbles through everything and you can end up with a really cool part. Absolutely. All right, another thing I, I want to talk about here, and this sort of almost is similar to what we've just discussed with the fact you can't just design a 3D part and, and send it straight to a CNC machine and have it printed out the other end or machine it out the other end. There's some steps in between. I, I think there's the same level of misconception out there and I think uh, Instagram probably has a lot to blame for this when it comes to the technology around 3D scanning. And I think again for, for the layman there's this miscon- misconception that you know, we, we get someone in and 3D scan an engine bay or an engine or for that matter absolutely anything uh, then that just gets magically imported uh, into Fusion or SolidWorks or whatever your your preference is, and it's all you know there dimensioned, and we can just start using that to then build parts around. It's not quite like that. Um, no, I don't have uh, I don't have a lot of experience with three D scanning. We've gotten to scan a few parts, but there was a part recently which was slightly organic. It had some weird radiuses and kind of sweeping curves to it. And I had to machine it. So I was handed a part, which was originally a casted part. I measured it about many ways that I would calipers, angle finder. Um, Sometimes I'll get a 2D sketch and just print it and then lay it over a 2D printed, you know, just on paper and just see if it's right. And, oh, maybe I'll tweak this a little bit. And I got my I got my part. I, I modeled what I needed, and then I was able to go get it scanned and hang out for the process of scanning it. And it's with a nice ferro arm, um, like a blue light scanner has a probe on it, so it wasn't a low end scanner. The person I was working with they they just got it, so they weren't incredibly efficient, and they were showing me the process and kind of teaching me through it. And I actually ended up doing the second one of it. But the process itself is it's cool and great and has so many amazing features. But the time it takes is about the same, and then you end up with just this point cloud. Or or if the software can do it, you know, it will just give you a surface part. But if you have a surface part, you usually can't just go and machine it. It acts as a visual aid uh, to design around kind of is what I've really, I don't know, sort of submitted to accepting it as right now, because really that's what it's best for. You see people scanning engine bays and 
you know, then designing this whole thing. And most of the time, it's just a point cloud or, or maybe some surfaces there to just give you a boundary to work inside of. It doesn't allow you to just build parts right on it most of the time because you have to end up modeling it anyway. So it's awesome. It's going to get so much better, but it's not as cool as you think it is right now for me. And, and I'm not efficient in it. And that's my experience with it so far. But yeah, no, that, that's that's fine. I think that's all, all we really needed to talk about. So yeah, I guess to take it one step further to to really sort of fill in the blanks here. So if if you had taken that uh, that cast part that you were talking about there and you you'd scanned that. What would be the the steps required to then take or go from that scan to be able to essentially machine or three D print basically to to build a model from that scan that could be used for further tasks? To my understanding, it becomes a matter of dealing with the software to patch all the surfaces and create a model which you can then either should be hollow, I believe, or you have as a good visual aid to start modeling your final part in and make sure that it fits and you can turn the one on, turn the other off and make sure that it's it's what you want. Because what you scan and what you get as far as surfaces isn't what you want to drive um, toolpaths off of. Uh, they'll have inconsistencies. They'll have a little divot in it. It'll kind of figure out its own little thing to make this patch over this glob of uh, flashing that is on the casting. So there does prove to be a good amount of post work that you have to do. So really, again, like I was saying, it it becomes just a visual aid to then compare your actual model to inside of it or be able, you can then pull measurements from it for sure. I mean, you can pull lots of measurements and get things that there's no way you're going to do with a set of calipers or find these angles, or you can push a plane midway through a part and get a cross section of it. Um, there's all these amazing things you could do with it, but you're not scanning something and just applying toolpaths to it. So. Yeah, okay. right. I think useful to a point, but maybe just really wanted to point out it, it's possibly not what a lot of people think it is at this stage and, and, and maybe uh, in time that will come. Now, we can't probably have any discussion around 3D modeling without also talking about uh, 3D printing, additive manufacturing. And, and this is something that, that's really come of age, particularly in the last decade or so, maybe even the last five years with the cost of 3D printing equipment just coming down so dramatically. How useful is 3D printing to you in terms of prototyping uh, or even making final parts? It's super useful being able to model something, think it's great, and then print it and realize that it's just doesn't fit or it's not going to work saves so much time. I assume also it saves a lot of money compared to actually sending that part out to to be machined out of alloy or whatever it might be. That's obviously going to be a lot more cost, costly than than a, a a three D printed part. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the cost savings and time savings is it's huge. It's really changed the game for me because uh, you know I'm able to make kind of some weird parts and some things I've sent out to uh, like get printed out of nylon to hold parts and it's really cool and I've been lucky enough to go print aluminum plenum and that was just not possible to machine and the time savings was incredible I mean if it was in a perfect world it could have been like a 36 hour process I think to have you know a modeled part finished to go weld it so it, 
it's amazing. Let, let's talk about that angle and spe- specifically here with the the alloy plenum that you've just mentioned. So I believe you're referring to the plenum that is for the Nissan SR22 VE Turbo, which we're going to talk about in a bit more detail. That, that's the one where we're on the same page here? Yeah, that's it. So, so this, from what I've looked at, and um, you know, again, people can scroll through your Instagram, which we'll talk about a little bit later to to find some photos of this. But uh, it looks like a dual plane plenum design. You've mentioned here, sort of additive manufacturing, three D printing. You can produce parts that would be difficult or maybe impossible to to manufacture using traditional fabrication or even traditional machining operations. Yeah, for sure. Basically, it's not a true dual plenum, I guess, uh, to be fair. It was designed out of a necessity of packaging. And while doing so, I started being able to look at adding, there's some internal veins to help direct air. And um, it's just not possible to machine. It would have to be two pieces, the cost of billet, the time to program, all of that would just be pretty close to on par, I think, with actually printing one. So Mm. We were able to just kind of go forth and get one printed and it, it allowed to yeah, basically make something that I, I couldn't machine and it would have to be multi-piece. Obviously, there's a budget that's gone into this car, which is which is not small. The process of, of 3D printing alloy like this, is this horrendously expensive or, or is it sort of getting to a point where it is uh, something that could be considered for you know, the average enthusiast who, who isn't sort of you know, pouring uh, paycheck after paycheck into their car? It was still quite expensive to do. I've had some people reach out and be like, oh, can I get that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's about this much. And they're like, whoa. So um, <laughs> it's it caught some people back. But people also don't realize the time and cost that it takes to, to make one-off parts. So if you're going to say we just split that plenum in two and we machined it, the cost of billet and then the cost of machine time and the cost of it possibly not machining well or correctly and scrapping one or breaking a tool... Everything that goes into doing it, you know, it it warranted making the part and getting it printed. So it's still quite expensive for, I think, most things. Definitely in certain budgets, it's absolutely acceptable. But, you know, again, it, it allowed it to have some features that wasn't going to happen through traditional manufacturing. So it's awesome. And it came out right the first time. So that's that's worth a lot in itself. I, I think probably as well, we need to understand that, you know, most people when they're looking at aftermarket parts, they're they're probably comparing something like this one-off 3D printed plenum to a production part that that the the manufacturer is making hundreds, if not thousands, of these parts per year. So there's obviously when you're in production with a part, th- there's a sort of benefit of scale in terms of bringing the cost for each of those parts down versus a one-off. Uh, so so that's something we do need to consider. The other thing as well is I, I can only assume as the technology improves and time goes on, the cost of these 3D printed metal parts is also probably going to come down a lot. So is that sort of a reasonable assumption? Yes. <laughs> the fact of when someone sees something and they think of what is already mass produced and compare the cost is the, I mean, it happens all the time. It's the worst thing ever. And I think 3D printing is absolutely going to start to come down. I mean, you already can, I think Glowforge has like a metal printer that you can get at your house for, you know, not a million dollars. So, you know, it, it's it's going to start coming down. It's going to start being probably offered overseas, most likely, where you can just get stuff printed for so much cheaper than 
you can now. I mean, I would imagine it just seems the way things go usually. Uh, and I assume it will just follow the same path that we saw with you know conventional 3D printing as well. And the, the cost of those machines has come down so dramatically. They're now genuinely affordable by just the average home enthusiast. So look, look forward to that day. It might be a few years off just yet, but uh, we, we know that's probably coming. Just on that plenum design, you, you mentioned turning vanes and with difficult without the benefit of, of pictures here but again uh, people can search that out maybe we can uh, drop a link in the show notes to make that a little bit easier but that uh, I mentioned a, a dual plenum you've said it's not quite a true uh, dual plenum but one of the considerations with uh, any plenum chamber intake manifold is, is trying to I guess equalise the flow into each cylinder uh, so that we don't have uh, sort of unequal amounts of fuel and air being combusted in each cylinder. Is there anything that you've done there in terms of, of CFD analysis or is this sort of a more of a, a gut feel kind of design? Yeah, it was a definitely a gut feel design. It would be hard to really deal with true CFD without having like real backed data to compare and, and actually run through simulation with. So it was kind of a gut design, just just sort of a general practice of what air should do. And, you know, it wasn't a hard divided guide. They're just kind of, there is one single split to sort of get to one and two and three and four, and then another two little guys to just sort of guide them towards uh, the correct runners um, and hopefully do their best to get air to everybody. On one end, you can probably say that that might not work. And then the other guy's going to say, oh, it's a turbo car. It's just cramming air. It doesn't care. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I think there is definitely an element of that with any turbocharged engine. They they seem to be, in almost all ways, a, a little bit more forgiving than a naturally aspirated engine. But there are still basic principles that we we want to follow, and um, you know, try try and get it, um, you know, at least as right as we as we can. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what it was. It's just, does this sound seem like a good idea? Am I, is there a wall blocking anybody? No. You know, it's, it's just, it's got to help. Sometimes common sense uh, goes, a, goes a long way to getting a design sort of 80% across the line, I think. Uh, let, let's move on and, and talk a little bit about exhaust manifold design, particularly around turbocharged engines. And, and this will sort of lead into uh, the discussion around the, the Mazwerk slash Shane T sort of compound uh, triple turbo setup uh, for the SR22 VE turbo. Uh, when it comes to exhaust manifold design, and, and maybe not specifically just for that that car, but obviously there's there's a lot of considerations that go into it in terms of where the turbocharger is going to be located, how you're going to run uh, the primary tubes into that, and the collector design, etc. Are you using anything formally to help you with the design? Um, are you modeling that in SolidWorks? Um, I mean, here at HPA, we've got the ICE EngineWorks header modeling kit, which sort of lets you kind of mock up a, a header and kind of get a sense of where it's going to run before you actually start working in in, in stainless material. So yeah, what, what's your take on that? Since I modeled the entire drag car mainly, I was able to design the manifold all in SolidWorks. And I was able to just basically look at what centerline radius bends I was able to get. And then from there, more or less, I tried to make everything equal length. What we tested with on the engine dyno, I knew worked. So I didn't try to stray far from that. 
Um, so we had that same, it's actually the same collector. And then as far as runners, the furthest one, I got as smooth as I can and then use that as my, my basically my baseline of what my runner length would be. And then basically ran everybody to get equal length from there. And the same thing, just kind of a common practice thing. I used the biggest centerline radiuses that I could everywhere that I could just to have the smoothest flow and then fed it all to the collector. And it, again, with probably every manifold, it became a big packaging game. Mm. If I wanted to use, like I said, I wanted to use the biggest centerline radiuses to have like the smoothest flow, but you couldn't always do that to get where you needed to go. So you got to step down to the next one and hopefully not the next one to get down there. So there's always some compromises along the way. In terms of the the runner length, for example, is this driven by math, by physics, or simply by a packaging constraint? Mainly a packaging constraint. Like I said, what we ran on the dyno, so I had that and knew that that more or less worked. And then from there, you know, it became a packaging and availability. If I could get from number four to the collector, that length in itself from number one to the collector, which is the closest that's already going to become an odd game if I was going to try to make anything longer. So, you know, I just, like I said, stuck off the last one. The furthest runner that I had to deal with is kind of where I started. Yeah. And I think it's it's fair to say that if we're looking at a, a naturally aspirated header, there's a lot of math that goes into the design of those and the optimal lengths and, you know, whether it's going to be a stepped primary, 421, 4 into 1, et cetera. And that as I've experienced with dynoing several higher naturally aspirated engines, there's a significant effect that that has on the power delivery and the power curve of the engine. And I mean, I can't say that that doesn't go for a turbocharged engine, but again, kind of like we were talking about before, I think there's, there's the turbo sort of is a little bit less sensitive perhaps to, to some of those elements. And I mean, also it, it's not too often that we get the ability to uh, back-to-back test sort of three or four different manifolds on a turbo engine with significantly different runner lengths, primary diameters, etc. to really get a feel for for what is the optimal. It, it's sort of more of a case of we we design something, we build it, we put it on the dyno, it, it, it works, it, it makes the numbers we're looking for. So we kind of move on. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, especially with this one too, because it's such a open the valve, make all the power you can. There's no sort of power band you're trying to live in. You're not trying to have a great responsive setup. It's just, this is what worked. So that's how it was designed for this one, for sure. And other things I did play with stuff. On, on my personal car, I built a really long uh, equal length manifold just to see if it would be any different for having longer runners compared to kind of that normal ram horn style for most four cylinders. And they got pretty long. I think I think the runner length on them might have been something like 25 inches, which it, it runs kind of forward. I actually ended up moving my power steering pump after the fact because it got in the way. But my car is personally really responsive, but I don't have a back-to-back to compare it to, and I don't want to go pulling it off to put another manifold on just, just to see, you know? So again, I think it's kind of one of those common sense, general practices, what's a good idea, what's What's a normal size? What does most people do? You know, kind of if you get outside of the box on runner diameter and length and stuff, you might end up in the weeds. And there's probably some people that have done a good amount of research to figure it out. So I kind of just live there with that. 
Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Let's talk about the materials that you're using. Obviously, there's a, a range of different grades of stainless. There's also like three, two, one is common for high end turbo headers. You know, what what's your sort of go to? Most of the stuff that I've dealt with is three hundred four. This one was three twenty one, just because of the high temps and stresses it's going to see. Outside of that, I've played with titanium a bit. You know, I haven't gotten to do any Inconel. In terms of those three, let's talk about uh, 304 versus 321 versus maybe uh, Inconel. What is the sort of benefit at least with 321 over 304? Is it just able to withstand more temperature? It does withstand more temperature and you're able to run a thinner wall, which is becomes a weight savings for it a lot. And then same with Inconel. It is more expensive though, so most people don't go for it. So you, you did mention, I think you just said you didn't, you haven't actually worked in Inconel, was that right? I've machined some, I haven't gotten to weld any, no. Okay, are there, are there any sort of intricacies or special techniques required to to weld Inconel in, in comparison to 321 and 304? Like I said, having not actually welded it, I don't know firsthand, but like anything, it becomes a a game of cleanliness and prep. You, I mean, for any welding, you want to have the best prep, the best fit, be extremely clean with your filler rod, have correct gas coverage. You want to back purge all your parts. So I would guess, I mean, I would approach Inconel in the same fashion. Sure. Can you give us a sense of maybe orders of magnitude of the cost difference between those three materials as well? Last time I checked and prices have been crazy lately. Um, everything's kind of jumped around, but usually... 321 is like two to three times what 304 can cost. Okay. And then Inconel, I haven't priced it, but I, I would imagine it's more than 321, you know, maybe four times the cost of 304. All right. So there's a reason why you tend to only see Inconel at the sort of highest levels of motorsport then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So we've talked a, a little bit about uh, the welding and I want to get a little bit further into that but before we do uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about the design around this particular uh, manifold application I mean it's sort of blown up the internet recently we we actually ended up doing a tech talk with Shane T uh, at the Mazworks stand with all of your fabrication work sitting on display behind us back at PRI 2019 and that's a really deep conversation with Shane about compound turbocharging and what he was trying to achieve with that particular engine. If memory serves correct, he was aiming for 3,000 horsepower out of a, a four-cylinder. So if people want to find out the, the deep dive into that, we'll, we'll link to that YouTube video in the show notes. But could you give us sort of a high-level sort of understanding of what compound turbocharging is and what was trying to be achieved with this particular project? Yeah, basically, I, from... What I understand, it's explained to me, you couldn't get a big enough turbo to move the amount of air needed to make that power that uh, SR could actually get spinning up to speed. So that was the game plan to go with the two, um, well, three. So the two up front technically act as a, a one turbo. They're all being driven. I mean, it sees all the exhaust gas at first, and then it gets the middle or the second stage spooled up to get all the air just started crammed in basically i mean out of the exhaust it oh let's see out of the exhaust it's into the collector there are two wastegates there to bleed off whatever we don't want the second stage to see the exhaust that may run through that turbo all comes and wraps back around and splits off to the two up front um once those come online then the wastegates start to play the game of keeping everybody in the range where they want to be so that basically all the turbos right now are hanging out 
and a happy efficiency range. Everybody thinks that they're just making like 40 pounds of boost when in reality, I think it's around like 120, 140, something like that. Yeah, I mean, again, without diving too too much deeper into the technicalities, you sort of get a multiplication factor of the boost. And, and the problem when you've got such a small capacity engine, 2.2 litres, trying to make 3,000 horsepower, you, you're not going to be able to find a compressor on its own that's going to be able to efficiently do so at the sort of pressure ratios you need to run. You sort of end up uh, kind of off the compressor map. So the multiplication factor allows you to use two or in this case three three turbochargers where each one you're sort of operating in, a, in an efficient area of the, the compressor map yet the as you say the, the boost pressure that the, the inlet manifold is actually seeing might be you know, well, well north of 100 psi which is difficult to support with efficiency on, on a single turbo. From your perspective, obviously the, the design sort of the, it was a bit of the, a brainchild I guess of, of Shane and how did you get involved in the project at the first instance? So my neighbor is uh, Kevin with KSV Looms. And Ralphie Navarro sent, I mean, that's the man who owned the car. He sent a car over uh, to have Kevin build a harness for. And that then needed to have a new turbo put on and some associated piping and, and whatnot to make that fit. Since I was next door, he said, oh, you should have my friend JT fabricate this. So the plan was to basically build this Corolla with a 3TC and just build a fun car. They've all been friends with Shane. I mean, it kind of came through Shane as well because uh, it, it was a, one of his previous customers through motorcycle racing. So I had the car. We're doing this Corolla. I believe he lives up north. So when World Cup was going down, he went up to Maryland to hang out with everybody. Then I guess over some drinks, probably um, <laughs> Shane... Shane said, you know, I got this idea and he, he wanted to do this compound turbo setup and Ralphie's a really amazing guy. And he just said, okay, let's do it. You know? And they're like, all right. So then I'm in this group chat because we were kind of all involved on the Corolla. And all of a sudden it says, hey, we're going to do this, this compound turbo setup with three turbos. And I'm like, oh, okay. okay. And I kind of thought it was a little bit of a joke. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like three, there, there's going to be two that feed one. And I'm like, oh, okay. And um, so then it became let, let's figure out how to do this three turbo compound turbo setup and we took the sr from the masworks s15 went to well they brought the dyno cart over to the shop yeah they sent me three turbos i think we originally used the original uh precision turbo that the car was running but nonetheless they sent me three turbos and rolled over the whole powertrain setup that they would go to the dyno with. So it had the intercooler, a fuel cell, everything mocked up to bolt up to the dyno. So here you go. I basically got a, a fresh collector and put two more gates on because with the turbos, they sent me, here's two gates. Here's two more intercooler cores for the first state because there's an intercooler stage between the two in the front and the one in the middle. Basically, I just had a whole bunch of parts show up and I grafted everything onto it and it all just stuck out to the side. So this this was just for the the dyno proof of concept cart. So this was at this stage, you had the flexibility to kind of put the parts within reason where they fitted without really worrying too much about how it was going to fit inside of a chassis. Yeah, I kept them as close as to not uh, have to do anything real crazy. But yeah, I just stuck everything to the right side. So I got two turbos just kind of towering over the manifold, uh, a whole bunch of exhaust coming off the back, kind of wrapped everything around. There's an intercooler off to the side. There's, um, I want to say for the intercooler, we just had, oh, we had a, like a little ice tank that just sat on the floor to run water and another pump to run water to that. So 
we brought all that. It looked crazy. My constraints was told make sure it fits through the door. Um, so so <laughs> yeah, that was probably helpful. But, yeah, make sure it fits through the door. Pretty hard to dyno it from the car park. Pretty much, yeah. So got that on, went to the dyno. We kind of like we didn't break the dyno, but we were basically doing burnouts on the dyno. It took a minute to get the turbo to come up online. And once it did, there had to be enough load on the dyno to have it come up and, and start to make boost. And then once it made boost, it would just run past the dyno. So basically, we didn't we didn't go back to do it, but the plan was to then have the MoTeC control a valve on the dyno to play with the load that the dyno is going to see to be able to hold it. But basically, it made 2170, something like that, but only at 9,500 RPM. And they were going to... I think 11 or 11.5 that day. And in that like couple thousand RPM, there was a lot of power to be made. And it was already at like 110 PSI, I think. And it started, it was blowing a coupler here and there. And then the dyno was just not having it. So after that, they decided that this can't fit in the Corolla. Part of it was the tire that we're going to have to run to put in the Corolla was really going to start to mess with the way the, the car looked. We we're going to have to start stretching things, maybe wide and stuff. And it wasn't going to be in kind of the spirit of what the car was. So let's just build a whole car. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's escalated that, quickly. Yeah, yeah. It escalated very quickly. Um, it sounds like that round of drinks with Shane was pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there. So um, I don't know. But I mean, that was after the dyno was when it turned into another car. Um, okay. So... Yeah, they said, let's just build another car. We'll build a whole car. You know, we need a car that will go fives. At that point, you know, I mentioned like, hey, I've never built a drag car before. I don't know if you want me to be the guy building this. And he goes, no, 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 no. I want you to do it. I think it's going to be really neat. If you're the one who builds it and, you know, we have all these people kind of from different worlds. And I think it might be neat to have a different take of a car, a drag car that's not built by, you know, a drag car guy to not always do it. Like, this is what drag car guys do. This is, this is it. Not not downplaying it, but you know, it's, this is the part you just put it on, it works. And you know, this is what we do. I didn't know it allowed me to kind of make things a little differently from the world that I'm used to. Yeah. Do, do, do you think that that's given you an advantage? I mean, obviously the, there's a number of, of very well-respected uh, specialist drag chassis builders in the US and for that matter all around the world and that's what they do sort of all day long. I mean given my my own experience in drag racing which was always with a, a factory monocoque so not quite the, the full tube uh, sort of four link rear end style of things but there's a lot to that rear end and the geometry and everything else about the tube chassis uh, that, that really comes becomes critical in, in getting the car to 60 foot to get it to go straight consistently and obviously all of that adds up to the ability to run you know into the fives or whatever you know is that daunting coming into building something like that that you've never done before i mean obviously no one's ever done something until they've done it for the first time so there's an element of that to consider but tell us about sort of your thought process with it yeah like i said i, I said i don't think you want me to do this so um yeah it was it, it was pretty daunting but Everybody in the group that we were working with, you know, um, they were all there to to help in the sense if I had any questions, you know, hey, is, is this right? Is this where you want this tube to be? Because, uh, you know, they, we added a whole bunch of different tubing than what was originally or usually put into a chassis. So, you know, all that input came from well-known people in the industry who who's in this circle to get this car going. Um, so I had some great people to ask, 
for sure. But in reality, yeah, it, it's pretty daunting because like I said, I, I, I came from the road race world where it's a unibody car and you're gutting it and putting a cage in, you know, you're lightening it as much as you can. I haven't built a whole chassis before and modeling it definitely was an awesome route to go because then when it became time to start playing the packaging game it was a little glimpse into the future instead of just standing there with a you know a big u-bend of stainless going does this fit here (laughs) so the the ability essentially to know before anything is is cut or bent that that it's all going to to fit as you expect yeah it's super useful and eye-opening because you'd have a plan. I'd go, this this should work. This should be okay. I'd start modeling parts up. I'd put them in. I'd pull this center line radius. It looks pretty good there. I don't think it's going to hit a tube. And I'll sweep the diameter and it's all the way in a tube somewhere. All the way in something else. I'm like, oh, okay, that's yeah. that's not going to work at all. Yeah, not at it's all. Not so work. it's like, okay, now I have to move the initial part that this is all, you know, anchored to. So yeah, it's super, super useful. And not, I mean, to my knowledge, not common in the drag world. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how those guys always build their cars. But uh, every time, you know, Shane came in or anybody came in, they looked at it, they're like, people, people aren't doing this. Like this is, this is a little out there. So I, I definitely can't say that it's not being done anywhere, but I haven't also seen that being mainstream. So, so perhaps you're onto something there. In terms of that, when you're sort of designing all of these parts in in CAD, does that give you the ability to have the you know the roll cage, for example, or any of the parts of the the tube frame chassis uh, sort of CNC bent and, and notched, or are you doing this by hand? Yeah, all the chassis um, I sent out to get CNC bent and notched showed up on a pallet. It's like a giant playset to put together, which was really awesome and was a major time saver. I mean, like I said, not having built a full tube chassis, because when you're fitting like a main hoop into a car, you know, a unibody, if you don't do it every day, it's a little bit of a task to make sure you bend the hoop first try and get it to fit in nice and tight and, you know, not compromise in places. So building a tube chassis, I'm sure there's a little bit more freedom there since you you got to be within the body, but it's just a silhouette of carbon. So you definitely have some more room, but being able to model it, the time savings seem huge uh, because of the cost. I mean, what it worked out to, I think was something like at my labor rate, it was going to be 54 hours or something, I would have had to have bent and notched an entire tube chassis. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way that this is going to happen and not make a mistake, not waste any material, which is all chromoly, Mm. which gets a little expensive. So it was an awesome way to go. And again, it allowed me to build off of the tube chassis and then start fitting all these parts. I mean, if I didn't model the chassis to get cut, I wouldn't be able to then play the game of where does everything fit. Yeah, I, I guess it's one of those things you either do it all or you basically do none of it because it's not going to work if you don't have everything modeled, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always seen uh, like all the off-road guys, all those trucks are like full CAD models and they got giant fixture tables and they laser cut all these jigs for building the chassis. And, you know, like I've seen them I'm like, oh, this is the way to go. This is the best way to go. So as soon as I got the opportunity, I went for it. No, it makes perfect sense. I'm interested when you get those parts, those those tubes back from being bent and notched, are they absolutely perfect? Are they exactly like your model? I mean, when you're manually uh, bending tube, there's a, there's a degree of spring back that you have to account for. Uh, I mean, I'm guessing that's also accounted for automatically with the CNC bender. But yeah, I'm just interested. Does it literally come out perfect or is there like a little bit of you know tweaking required? 
So when I was working with them, getting them bent, I asked, Hey, what are all the centerline radiuses supposed to be? And they just gave me, you know, a list of everything that I had to do. So I went through my model and changed everything to what, what their centerline radius resulted in. So I'm sure that helped. And then as far as fitting after the fact, if it was a straight tube on a straight tube, it fit 95%. I mean, I always cleaned it up with like a drum sander just to get into fresh material and make sure that there's not a little booger from like the laser or anything like that. But it was really clean from the start. Just kind of the OCD side of it made, you know, make sure it's like perfect, perfect. Must be Um, satisfying. But as far as putting it together, yeah, it was extremely satisfying. And then I'd go back and forth from the model and go, okay, from, you know, this tangent edge to the start of, you know, the crotch of this tube or where the tube meets, And I'd mark out everything kind of perfectly as I was fitting each tube so that when I got to 12 feet at the other end or something, something wasn't totally off. So I think it becomes very, there can be a big user error if you just loosely start to fit and just weld stuff where, you know, it seems happy. If you just assume everything's perfect, then you know, it's like, ah, this is good. Um, But most of them, most of them where they were supposed to land, they landed. And then the only thing would be if a notch landed on a bend, that would end up requiring a little like hand massaging to get the fit just right. But at the same time, if you kind of didn't care to a certain extent, you could probably just weld it on. It'd probably be fine, you know, but... We'll, we'll talk about fit up in a moment because that, that does become quite important with the material you're working with. Uh, in terms of that centerline radius that you've referred to a couple of times, I'm just guessing here that what you've got to do is is deal with whoever's going to be doing the CNC bending, find out what centerline radius they're actually able to, to mandrel bend the material on and then match that in your model so that basically the, the model, the part that you're giving them to bend and cut is actually physically able to be uh, bent to match is, is that what you're getting at there uh yeah for sure most centerline radiuses uh there's kind of it's usually like three times or four and a half times something like that like what the diameter is it's usually pretty standardized but like you were saying earlier when you you know hand bend something uh there's always that spring back so things aren't always exactly the same and i mean i don't know exact numbers off the top of my head but let's just say it was like a four and a half inch center line or something like that I'm pretty sure that their number was like 4.6 maybe, or, you know, it was very close to what it was. It was just, Hey, what's, what's your resulting center line when it's bent just so my model, you know, is what that is. So it got everything just that much closer, but yeah, it would be a good idea if you were going to do it to ask them and have them tell you, I mean, depending who you go with, they might just say like, Oh, it, it's close enough, you know, but they, they did tell me exactly what they, their result was. And that's what I put in and, worked out great perfect all right let, let's talk about the material you've mentioned that you're using chromoly and you know the, there's a variety of different materials that can be used for tube frames for roll cage structures i mean at the the lowest level there's there's mild steel and then we've got chromoly and and doe coal is another material that uh, i i haven't personally had experience with here in new zealand one of the the benefits of chromoly is that it's much stronger than a mild steel so we get to use a thinnest uh, sort of thickness of the of the tube, bringing the the overall weight down for the same strength. But there's uh, some some problems or sensitivities around the uh, input of heat during the welding technique with chromoly that needs to be carefully considered for a strong and reliable structure. Can you talk to us about those sort of heat related problems with that material? 
Sure. Yeah. With the chromoly being thinner, basically, it usually does take less heat uh, compared to what you'd be used to with mild steel because most of the requirements for a mild steel cage, the wall thickness is is thicker. With TIG welding, you, you don't want to end up you know, cooking the weld. It can get brittle. Um, you know, it'll harden. And basically, I'd manage it just by kind of jumping around. Having your prep really good is another thing. If you leave the mill scale on of anything, you usually need more heat to get through it. So you want to prep your material best you can, get all of that off, nice, shiny, clean material, and uh, it welds a lot better. You can use less heat technically. And um, since it's thinner, you know, they'd be single passes and just kind of don't overcook your weld. Take your time. It's a time game sometimes. In, in terms of removing that mill scale, what techniques are, are you using there? Is it just uh, sort of a, a sanding it off or yeah, what? Uh, I just scotch right. Scotch right, okay. I have scotch right, yeah. Um, you could use like a higher grit sandpaper as well, but I scotch right. And you're sort of wanting to clean that mill scale back a couple of inches from the, the weld area? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, it is technically like a layer of oxidation, so it has impurities in it. So you don't want that getting into the weld either. It's back to that like cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness for all your welding. In terms of reducing the heat input to the, the weld Fit-ups are a really critical part of this as well. So talk to us a little bit about, about what sort of fit-up you're looking for. How, how much of a gap is too much of a gap? Um, for me, at least with the tube fitting and the stuff that I do, um, I have no gap. And I'll end up, uh, depending what it is, if, how, what the thickness of the wall is, but certain parts I'll you know bevel or chamfer the edge to give myself kind of a little bit of a V groove to kind of fill in. So you're using less heat and kind of building that material back up with the filler rod. And then, yeah, I know that some things like, I mean, I guess it's unrelated, but you get into like the pipe fitting world and there's stuff where you you leave a gap. That's not the case for me with almost anything I do. But not having a gap also allows, you know, smaller filler rod because you're not trying to bridge to, you know, the gap between with a larger piece of filler rod, which then you need more heat for a bigger piece of filler rod. So, yeah, that's the heat management game, I guess. I'm definitely not... uh a experienced or competent welder so i'll put that out there but you know i i do talk to a lot of fabricators i i, I understand the processes involved and i think probably you know, for those who are struggling to get good quality welds the the key really is as i understand it all comes before you actually ever pick up the tig torch in terms of the material preparation getting that fit up between parts correct so there's minimal or absolutely no gap and then that cleanliness which you've touched on if you get all of those those parts of the process right before you actually pick up the TIG torch, then the actual welding process, you're already ahead of the game and you're much more likely to be able to produce a quality and, and strong weld. Is that sort of you know, your experience as well? Would that, is that be how you would describe it? Yeah. Once you finally sit down and, and start welding and you know strike an arc and start filling, that's like, I don't know, maybe the last like 30% of it because all the time if you you know the more time you spend prepping and fitting and making sure everything's clean and back purging your parts and tacking nice small little tacks correctly or tacking a lot of tacks to help disperse heat that's most of it like anybody that comes to me and they're just like hey I have this little part I need you to weld it it's just like you know three little zaps or you know an inch worth of weld I'm like that's not it like that's not the time that it is to weld stuff it's it's all the prep and you know people want to bring me the parts like oh I'll clean it I'll, I'll I'll prep it for you. I'm like, no, I don't want you to. You're not, you're not going to do it, you know, to what I want. So yeah, it's a lot of time and a lot of people overlook it. And I don't know, it's in comparison to maybe painting a car. You know, if you don't, 
if you don't prep the car correctly, you're going to see all the, you know, if you don't sand to a fine enough grit, you're going to see all the scratches. If you don't make sure all the grease is off, you're going to get fish eyes. If you know, Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't seal the car properly. It's going to start rusting later. So like there's all this time that goes into fit up, make sure your parts are clean, make sure the fits really good. If you got to go back and sand it, if you have to break out a file just to get, make that gap disappear if you can. And then make sure you have a nice beveled edge. Make sure it's an even beveled edge. You just, you want the consistency. Yep. It's the consistency game. And I prep all of my parts the same. If I'm prepping steel, regular mild steel for something, I'll prep it as if I was going to weld titanium. It's my standard practice for welding. And since it's just the standard that I have, it's not anything special. It's not something that I'm going to forget when it comes time to do something that's really good. I've welded a whole bunch of like a bunch of laser cut parts for like some production one time. And it was a part that ends up in a pond. It doesn't do anything special. Nobody cares what it looks like. And I prepped them pretty good last time. And this time I was like, let me just see how these go without prepping them. And I welded them and they welded great. So I, like I somewhat wasted time the first time prepping <laughs> them. Right. But what happens is that's fine for that, right? Because if I'm welding it and all of a sudden there's this like booger of, you know, an oxidized piece from the laser where the gas was off or I, I don't know, just some crap that's in, in the material, right? You're going to weld along. It's going to be going great. And then all of a sudden it's going to blow up in your face. You're going to have this big like puff. Something's going to volcano out at you. And, you know, that perfect weld is ruined. So yeah, it doesn't matter for the part that's in the pond, you know, who cares? But if you're welding on you know this perfect piece of titanium or those headers for you know 3000 horsepower or something you don't want that to happen it's not that it's always going to fail because you didn't prep it great it's the fact that it's going to fail or it's going to you know go wrong or go bad as you're welding it exactly when you don't want it to so every precaution that you can take to have the best weld you can you just might as well take it absolutely i mean, i think it, it just becomes part of that entire welding process and and we cover that in in our welding courses we've got a step-by-step process so that those parts of the process don't get missed and and like you said I mean the the actual welding part if you've done all of the the preparation and the fit up you've got that correct the welding first of all should go smoother it should be easier your finished results going to be better and as you mentioned sort of you know that that makes up about a, a third of the task I think for those just getting started the the temptation is of course just to jump straight into the welding uh, but you need to understand that there's a lot more that that goes in uh, to it particularly as well more important when you're working with some of those more exotic materials like titanium where you know, the cost of making a mistake is going to be much greater. Uh, the other element there is the chromoly. If we put too much heat into that, we end up potentially making the material brittle in the heat-affected zone and could end up having a failure if the, the car's involved in an accident. So the, there's a, a safety element that, that comes into that as well, that sort of the onus there is on the fabricator to make sure that that job has been done correctly. Now, moving on, JT, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, the business element of, of what you're doing and uh, we've got a lot of people listening to this podcast who are either business owners in the automotive industry or maybe considering that that sort of jump into starting their own automotive related business. So uh, I'm interested to sort of know how how you decided that starting your own company was going to be the right move for you. What was the thought process there? 
the main thought process was the race team I was working for dissolved and I wasn't going to have a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so you were pushed essentially. Uh, yeah, a little bit. No, I, um, so, I mean, that, that did happen though. Um, the Grand Am team I was working for, he just, you know, mo- most of those teams are kind of just well off people that want to go racing and then they go racing for a while and maybe they don't want to go racing anymore. So it was cool. I mean, I have, I have a great relationship with them still, but, uh, you know, they didn't want to have a big full team. I mean, we had four cars, two, you know, rigs. So it, it was a big operation. And basically when that started to dissolve, figured I might as well kind of start looking for something to do. Uh, I kind of always wanted to have my own thing. I think it was like by the time I was 30. So it was kind of close to that. And uh, I had some pretty good contacts in the race industry. You know, there were some good teams locally to me. So I was offered uh, a spot in a friend of mine who worked on the team as well. He had a little shop of his own, just kind of for his own stuff to work out of. And uh, he said I could do some stuff in that space. So I was able to, I think the first thing I did was a roll cage for a guy who had an E30 M3. I was fortunate enough to be able to use the bender that was at the race team. You know, I I had my own TIG welder. I had a bunch of my own sheet metal tools. I mean, I had my garage kind of packed with brake and a shear and, you know, a handful of things for sure. So I had a a good bit because I had my own projects at my house that I was working on. So I definitely had a bit of a head start there, but I worked on his car. I built that roll cage. Somebody else who was into uh, or ran ST, I did like a fuel system and an exhaust and some other stuff that was kind of in line. We, we ran some Civics on that team as well. We, we were running Mini Coopers and then we switched over to Civic SIs. So we were running those. So it was the same car. So kind of we did the same little setup on that car same out of my friend's garage or you know shop that he had and then um i had a buddy who i was able to rent a space with that was actually right next door to the machine shop that i worked at when i was 18 so i mean i was in a place where i had a great neighbor who had a machine shop that i, I was given a key to and i just kind of you know i, I I had a couple jobs that, you know, the roll cage and the other thing. And I had some people that said like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll send you stuff. I'll, you, you can do this. You can do that. So I was like, all right. And kind of jumped for it. I think it's the only way you can do it. I didn't have a business plan or what's my my model. Like how am I planning? And I just, I just went for it. And the goal was like pay rent, pay rent, <laughs> <laughs> pay rent at the shop, pay, pay yeah. rent at the house and uh, keep going that way. Uh, have a really cool wife that won't hit you working a lot um, and, uh, you know, support what you're trying to do. And um, I mean, it just kept going. I'd get some more teams. I'd, I'd always end up at other shops. I'd end up other places still, you know, I was just a hired gun a lot of times. So, you know, they'd have, like I said, there's a good amount of race teams around where I'm at and they'd be like, Hey, can you, can you bring your welder over here and weld this up? Hey, can we need this made? Can you come out here? Like I said, I had a good relationship with Njuku. So, Every time it was like Formula D crunch time and they're putting cars together into like, you know, late hours of the night, they're just like, you want to come out here? And I'm like, yeah. And I just, I'd be, you know, I just show up and, and hang out and eat a bunch of chicken nuggets and, you know, build cars uh, late into the night. And, you know, I just kind of put in all the hours and then they'd have to leave for the track. And I'd be like, all right, see ya. And I'd be done. I mean, it, it sounds like you've basically jumped out of the plane and built the parachute on the way down, which is probably not too dissimilar to how my original business formed. And you know, I think your, your point about business plans there, obviously having an idea and a bit of a, a direction is important. Uh, I've 
developed a fairly extensive business plan for my last business uh, and we sort of ended up doing almost everything that wasn't on that plan the the whole landscape sort of changed and it changed so quickly that you sort of have to pivot so I think you know having some understanding of of what you're intending to to achieve and how you're going to get there is worthwhile but trying to plan to the nth degree often ends up actually hurting you because you have to have the the flexibility to to pivot as you see opportunities or as the business develops and I think trying to stay too rigid to a a plan that's no longer relevant uh, often can be um, detrimental. You're essentially a one-man band and one of the the, the problems I, I sort of faced myself because when I started my tuning shop, I was in that same situation. I, I kind of got into it because I really enjoyed tuning cars, and that's what I wanted to do. And sort of, you know, a year in, I realised that I was spending about a third of my time tuning cars, and the rest of the time was sort of talking to customers, uh, invoicing, quoting, marketing, all of the rest of the stuff that goes along with running a business, and and that stuff I I didn't enjoy so much. So how have you found that element? So what what amount of your time do you reckon you're actually spending on the tools doing work versus the other elements of, of being a business owner? Sadly, I probably feel like it might be that, you know, 30% of the time thing just because, you know, as a one-man band, you don't have somebody to take out the garbage, to talk to somebody, to run marketing. Maybe I stopped posting on my Instagram for like probably a year at one point because I just get kind of sucked into it. Yeah, to say how much time I work on the tools, I mean, at a good time, I like to think that it's, you know, 70% of the time, but there's other times where it's for sure 30% because, you know, someone wants to do, you know, a run of parts and now you got to call around and get quotes on material. You got to figure out what other parts are needed for the job. You got to call this place because this car came in and it's just got some weird stuff on it that doesn't fit right that you now have to, instead of going the normal route of like, let me just, let me just make this. I'll just make what I need to get where we need to go. But it's like, well, let me make sure that I'm not going to go diving into something that someone's going to look at who provided the parts and they go, oh, the person before you put this on backwards and you know now it fits. So yeah, you spend a lot of time, I mean, sadly, a lot of time doing other things. It's a little difficult. Fortunately, I don't play the marketing game. I'm, I'm very word of mouth. And some customers I do spend some time talking with, but I'm at the point where I kind of have a small group of people that I often do the work for. And they kind of bring me something and they go, here, do do what you do. You know, make this part. Here's my problem. Solve it. I don't care what you do. In that, there is a lot of time of like, okay, again, let me let me find this material. Let me, I guess modeling's a tool. Sometimes let me model this part. Let me figure this out. So yeah, there's a lot of time in that instead of just working on what I like doing. I mean, I really like fabricating. I really like making things. So it's difficult when that's kind of, you get pulled away from it to do the other things that actually have to make the business run. And on that note, is is expansion something that um, you're considering? Would would you take on more staff or are you quite happy with the, the scale that you're operating at the moment? I definitely like to take on more staff. I think I mentioned earlier, my friend Garrett, he's been doing a good amount of programming, uh, especially with the new five axis that I got. So that's been like a major help because it allows me to kind of design some weird parts and just throw it at them and be like, here, figure this, figure this out. Um, <laughs> he's he's way more proficient in uh, Fusion than me. He, he's actually pulled me into it a lot. So, I mean, that's been super helpful. I'm really trying to get him on. And then, uh, you know, I'd love to have another fabricator. It's really hard to 
find somebody, especially, I mean, I feel like I'm very, very, very particular in what I want. So it, it might be kind of annoying to have me like, I mean, I've had a friend in who does amazing work and made a part and it was like, oh, I want it like this. And like, he got it all done. And I just looked at it and I go, yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like uh, it. Like, let's do yeah. it over. But I do that to myself. You know, I don't, Yeah, I'm not trying to do it and be mean to him or anything, but I do it to myself. I'll make a part. I'll spend all day on it. And if I don't like it, I'll throw it away. I mean, it's just sometimes you can't come back to something, you know, you get too far forward, you try to see something out. And if it's not going, you just start over. That's how I make the parts that I make. I, I try not to compromise along the way. I, I This is my plan. This is what I want to make. And if it goes well, cool. If I have to make like some of the sheet metal stuff, if I have to make a weird part to get it to fit right, to figure out this bend to get it. And then all of a sudden I'm like a little bit short on the other side, then I go, okay. And that's my template for the next one. You know, Mm. instead of just like, let me weld this little scab on here and you know, Oh, that hole, that that hole that got drilled offset, like, "Mm, it's fine. You won't see it. Like if I can weld it shut, I will. If, if that's that, then it's garbage. I've welded stuff on backwards before and throw it out, start over. The problem with being a perfectionist. Uh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's it's uh, my best and worst attribute. I mean, I've had people, even for myself, just like, oh, just it doesn't have to be really nice. It's like, I can't, I can't do that. I always find it frustrating when I spend just a, a, an irrational amount of time making something or modifying something that, that no one else is going to see. Uh, maybe it's hidden under the car or something, but I mean, I know it's there, so I, I, I want it to be right. I try to make parts so that when someone takes it apart, they realize how awesome it is at that point. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's something to always strive for. Uh, one of the the last questions on this particular topic uh, that I've got is is along the lines of quoting or estimates for customers. Now, it sounds from what you've said already that you're actually dealing with a fairly tight knit group of people who probably know you, know your your quality of work and the finished product they're going to get. And, and maybe, I'm hoping, are probably well enough funded that the, the dollar value within reason is, is maybe not quite so critical for them. But in general, you know, if you're dealing with just a, an off-the-street customer and they come in wanting a, a quote on a job, and th- this is a, a problem that I face with my old business. It's very, very difficult when you're doing particularly intricate one-off jobs you've never done it before how are you going to actually put a dollar value on that and be able to stick to it to the cent you know any any insight you can give us there i take a good guess for sure based on similar things in the past but it's still very hard and probably one of the worst things that i have to not the worst things but you know one of the things that i don't like about the most but sadly what does happen is uh, you know i'll i'll make a quote and the best thing you could do is it's kind of work to a point. And if you if you see and feel that it's not going to be trending to the amount of time or cost that you initially talked about, you know, reach back out, tell them, hey, you know, this is going to be a little more. Are you okay with that? Maybe there's some things that, you know, you can change or sacrifice design wise to kind of, I'll say meet their budgets. I, I usually don't like to try to meet people's budgets um, just because of the fact that to an extent, it definitely will hinder what I'm going to make them. Mm. So, I mean, there's a lot of times where, you know, I'll end up eating some time just because it's going to end up a, a nicer product, a cooler part. And, you know, will warrant, you know, that next person who's going to come in and pay for it. Like I said, sometimes the budget thing, uh, it's, it's real. People have them. I do deal with some people who do have better finances than than the average person walking in. That allows me to 
to do something better. But the people that do come in and they want it for cheaper and they go and get the cheaper part, it's a couple times that they do that, that they'll learn that pay my initial cost, you know, they'll end up there with once they do like the second or third revision of the part from the cheaper person sometimes. So, you know, you do that a couple times or you let somebody go off and, and figure that out for themselves. And, you know, they realize like, I'm going to bring it to you. You're going to charge me. You're fair. I'm not trying to rob anybody, but you know, time is time and, and it's hard to put a value on it. I mean, you could put a value on it, but it's hard for people that want the finished part to pay that money for it, especially when someone wants someone wants an exhaust or another mass produced part. I'm going to be three, four times the cost of whatever that exhaust is, you know, and half the time the material alone costs more than just the exhaust itself. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's just the quality of materials that happens. I think there's there's a, a learning curve for the customer if they haven't dealt with high-end fabrication. And and again, it's sort of as we've talked about and you just mentioned with that exhaust, their, their expectations have been grounded in mass-produced parts and, and that is just not what you're dealing with. So there's a substantial uh, increase in cost for these high-end custom fabricated parts and that, that's just what it is. Uh, but of course, the expectations of the customer do need to be kind of matched with with your reality as well. Otherwise, all you end up with is a pissed off customer and you know they, they go and jump on the internet and tell everyone how, how you're a thief, which you know d- doesn't help anyone. So yeah, it, it's a balancing act, I think, is, is probably at the end of the day the best way of describing it. But if you can find that level of, of customer that has the budget to match what you're going to have to charge them for the work, for a fair amount of work, and you can do the work at the, the level that you want to be able to do it with, that, that's the perfect mix for everyone. There's nothing worse than trying to compromise your finished product because you know that the customer doesn't quite have the budget to suit. And at the end of the day, you produce a part that maybe they're not entirely happy with, you're certainly not happy with, and the problem with that is that part's then on the car and other people are going to see it and judge it without knowing that backstory. Yeah, that's super true. And that's like what I was saying before. Sometimes I just, you know, I end up having to give away time just in order for that to happen because it's, again, not not a great like business plan or anything, but, you know, it's it becomes an investment in yourself. If you if you end up putting out your best work, even if you're not getting paid for every hour of it, you're going to end up, you know, attracting the clients that can pay for it. If all I do is meet your budget and I put out something a little bit nicer than the guy down the street, there's always somebody who's going to do, you know, air quotes, exactly what I'm going to do for you for much cheaper, you know, a fraction of the cost. Um, You can go and do it, but you know, you're paying me for one, my time, my experience, my tools, the level of detail that I'm going to put into it, the forethought that I'm going to put into it. Like, how much are you going to like taking this part off later? Because if it's fitted horribly or you got to take five other things off to get it off or, you know, I end up having, you know, I use a lot of like floating nut plates, and you know, PEM nuts and stuff where you don't have to have another hand wedged behind this panel to take something off. And people always be like, oh, where'd you get that from? It's like, well, I mean, they're easy to find. You just, you know, go get them. Like, oh, how'd you put that? Oh, well, you need this tool. Like there's a value to it and not everybody's going to see it from the start. But if you always put it out, you'll get the clients that you really want. And it's, it's not fun. It's, it's not uh, easy, but I think it, it's a lot of what's gotten me to where I'm at by not compromising, you know, the parts or trying to fit in people's budgets. And maybe the other thing too is, you know, when you go to quote something, just quote it high. If you think you could do it in an hour, you probably should quote three. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, and and just 
let them know. I mean, I mean, set your set yourself up for it as well. Uh, you know. Well, then when it where you quote three, you think it will take an hour. You quote three, it actually takes you four hours. You're you're only yeah, losing you're only one losing hour an hour instead, hour. Of, um, instead of three. I mean, yeah, it's. It's definitely difficult. It's it's one of the harder things for sure. But I think it's important if you want to kind of get to that higher end level and and try to make really great, really nice parts. I think that's I think that might be part of the investment. You know, I didn't go to I didn't go to college. I didn't get any formal training. And maybe those hours that I lose giving away to customers, maybe that's my tuition. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, it's not a bad way of looking at it actually. Yeah, you know, but I mean, that's what's gotten me to the clients that I have now who it's a word of mouth thing. And when you get into that circle of clients, they're going to bring you other people that they've already vouched for, you know, they're kind of the gatekeepers and don't have people coming through who are then going to, you know, start to like nickel and dime you down and ask why everything's so expensive. They just go, Oh, this guy's for this guy. I'm on the same level as him. He says he's good here. Do what you do. Make me nice parts. And it takes a minute to get there, but it's pretty it's pretty great when you are because it allows you to do some pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. All right, JT, let's move towards wrapping this thing up. I think we've we've taken plenty of your time for today. Uh, we've got the same three questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And the first of those is what's next in the future for you? Probably more machined parts. I guess I'm trying to appropriate, focus my time on, I hate production, but it, it can be quite profitable. Instead of just, I'm really capped by the hours that I could put in a day as one person. I can only bill as many hours as I can willingly work. So when you get into production uh, of some parts, it allows you to actually let the machine run while I'm doing something else as well. So trying to get into some some production parts probably and, and offer some of neater little bits and provide some prototyping parts for people to maybe get into production or at least proof out so they can go take it elsewhere for production. Um, I've done some product design here and there for uh, a couple people and some other companies um, where they'll give me something. I'll model it, kind of make their one-offs, and you know they can go off and test fit and go into production on their own elsewhere. So probably just more machining, I think. Kind of get picky about what fabrication jobs I take in. So I don't have one stream of income, which is just solely fabrication. Um, it'll allow me to be a little more, yeah, like I said, picky about what jobs I take on. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think just what you mentioned there as well is is worth just reiterating that you know you've got an hourly rate and you've got X number of hours in the week, and and that's kind of your your ceiling essentially on on what you can bring in. So you know if you can start uh, making parts where you know you're not just relying on an hourly hourly rate for your wage, that that's really going to multiply what you can do. And as you say, you can have that machine running while you're doing something else. It makes perfect sense. Next question, is there any advice given your career so far that you could give to maybe one of our younger listeners looking to pursue a similar career or even if you could circle back and give advice to a younger version of yourself to help fast track your career? Yeah, what would that advice be? I feel like there might not be a fast track to it. I think a lot of it takes time. I've been tinkering with stuff for like 19 years, I think. Let's see, I got my first shop in 2014, summer 2014. So, you know, none of it happens overnight. And, you know, none of my welds looked really awesome the first time, you know, the welder showed up and I got it set up in the garage and none of my sheet metal stuff was as nice. I mean, it's all, it's a long learning curve. There's a lot of great resources out there now that, I didn't have 
you know, stuff on YouTube and, you know, 3D modeling, you know, all of that's just awesome. There's so many like amazing like TIG welding tips and there's all these cups and people have these trailing gas setups and back perch that like there's all this stuff where I'd have to make my own like, you know, purging setup or, you know, machine this block to, you know, use as a heat sink where now you could just like order stuff. So there's a lot of really great resources for learning and just the products. But I don't know if there's a fast track. I think it's really just a time thing that you have to put in the time. You have to try to make parts, try to try to make what you want and you're going to learn something. Even if you go and you do every tutorial and watch every video and they tell you how to do everything until you try to like cut that piece of metal and sand it well, it's not going to, they don't tell you how to get the feel for, you know, a, you know, a little like two inch sander, you know, disc sander to kind of clean up the edges and then step down and get it smoother and hand chamfer some stuff and just be real meticulous on how your fit up is. Like if you're going to fit some tubing like if you get a notcher and you notch the tube and you go to put it to a tube it's gonna it's gonna fit okay but there's gonna be some like really thin burrs and you know sharp edges coming off of it so you got to clean those up and you know the mill scale is not going to be cleaned off it so clean that up realize what happens when you weld it when you don't clean up the mill scale see how different it is when you do clean up the mill scale just i think you just have to put the time in i don't want to say that there's not a fast track but i'd probably say don't be afraid to make bad parts I think unfortunately with you know the internet these days budding fabricators look at uh, Instagram accounts like well porn and and they see you know every second post or every post is you know beautiful stacked dime welds and you get discouraged maybe if if that's not what comes off the welder the very first time they use it and I couldn't agree more. The 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 time on the tools, the the practice is is really critical. The old story: it takes ten thousand hours to become proficient in anything. And I think these days, sort of a, a bit of distraction going on, and and people sort of want to be an expert the first time they pick up any tool. But yeah, you know, that that's just not reality. So yeah, I think that's a fair point. Get in there, practice, spend the time, understand that you're not going to be great the first time you do anything. Let's be honest that that goes for for everything we do. It takes time to to learn the skill and get proficient. I mean, even with our courses, we we say exactly what you're mentioning there. You know, we'll show you how to do something with that fabrication or you know, engine building or wiring. But you know, from there, you've got to take the skills that we teach you, actually put them into practice, perfect them, and, and understand them and get that feel for it. And there's, there's no way of fast tracking that particular element of it. That that's just putting in time on the tools. Yeah, Instagram kind of, I mean, and all social media sort of, it can be discouraging, but it it's also not, it's not real, you know? I mean, every every person's weld isn't, I mean, there's a guy out there, I, I promise you that there's somebody out here that every weld that they do is perfect. You know, it's like amazing. But I also guarantee you that if you ask them, they will point out every flaw in that weld because that's how I am. Every weld that I've ever posted like uh, you know I posted something my buddy's like that's amazing I go oh well you see this this part right (laughs) here like I hate that part that's the worst part so I mean yeah Instagram and social media is pretty pretty great and pretty bad for that because I mean yeah not everything's that perfect not everything happens overnight you know the drag car is going to look like it was overnight because of the fact that I haven't posted anything about it forever and now, you know, I'm sharing a whole bunch and it's going to be like, oh, like, when did you do this? And like, I just kind of have like a stack up of pictures and I'm just kind of sharing it all now. But I mean, that was a, a pretty long process and nobody's going to know or realize or care. They're just going to want to see it and then move on to the next thing. So I don't know. Things take time. That's what nobody wants to understand. 
things take a long time. It takes a long time to make really nice things. Machining parts. You want a really nice looking machine part. You want those really fine tool paths, those nice step overs with the ball end mill going across it. Eh, that might be like 20 minutes, you know, compared to like a bigger step over, like a more scalloped one that, you know, would be a lot faster, but it might not be the appearance that a part you're going for is going to take. And someone's got to either pay or lose money for that time. Yep. Solid advice. All right, JT, last question for today. If people want to follow you, and, and I certainly urge that they, they do, uh, where are they best to do so? Probably just my Instagram. I think that's really where I post things, which is just JTO Power on Instagram. I do technically have jtopower.com, but it's just going to redirect you to my Instagram because I've never built a <laughs> okay. website. So uh, you could check one of those two places and, and hopefully... Uh, the smart move would be once uh, start probably making some parts uh, to actually get like a website to push some products on just kind of weird little trinkets that I've been making across this whole time that maybe other people would be interested in actually having, but I should yeah. figure out how to mass produce a little bit of. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll link to your account anyway in the show notes, make it nice and easy for people to, to find you. Look, JT, it's been great chatting, uh, really interesting to get some insight on everything you do, in particular your business. And uh, we, we certainly wish you all the success for the future, whatever that may bring. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, didn't think I'd be on here, so it's pretty cool. Nah, no problem. It's been great. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with JT, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. Also, this is a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to T.S. DeLosa, hope I've got that right, who has said if you tune cars you need to subscribe. Excellent podcast that's always packed full of the best people in this industry. If you're into tuning cars this is packed full of enjoyable knowledge. Well thanks for your kind words there, get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details and we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you. All right, that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. 
If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code podcast 75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.